0: Temp check. time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, when it comes to the Afghanistan crisis and U.S. missteps, there are some familiar faces and themes raising the question, do we really learn from our past mistakes or simply work to explain them away and cover them up. Also an update on natural immunity versus vaccine effectiveness. I'm really excited that in just a little more than two weeks, we begin season seven of Full Measure, our seventh year. Hard for me to believe. I worked at CBS for about 20 years. Before that, I worked for CNN for three years. It doesn't seem like I've been gone from CBS that long, but anyway, starting our seventh year of original reporting, and it seems to have grown only more important as the years have gone on, and the news and information online has become more and more managed. All I try to do on my program is to bring original information and reporting, particularly that which is being censored or is difficult to find elsewhere. This used to be considered just normal news reporting, But as that started to change, particularly, I think, accelerating in the 2016 time period as special interests, political interests and corporate interests got very aggressive, it just became harder and harder to get that reporting that gives different viewpoints, various studies, full facts, the other side of the story. Instead, you know that too often people are picking a side and censoring the information that disagrees with the side that they pick. They even censor factual studies and factual information. They even call things that are merely supported viewpoints of scientists and political figures and other notables, they call that disinformation and they censor it if it's something they don't want you to know about. Well, you won't find that at full measure. And I think that's what sets us apart from so many other news programs and from the other Sunday television shows. You know, the Sunday talk shows, as they call them, a lot of times They get their guests, and I wrote about this in one of my books, by having political figures or the presidential administration contact them and say, hey, we're putting out this political figure today for you. In other words, instead of them choosing the newsmakers, or let's say instead of us, we in the news, choosing the newsmakers we want to interview on a particular topic, too often they are coming to us. They've turned us into their propaganda tools. They tell us, you can have this interview on this Sunday, and that results in sometimes, as you saw, maybe somebody like Dr. Fauci being on all three Network Sunday programs, or four Network Sunday programs counting cable, giving the same talking points or propaganda, not really telling us much of anything. And I, I think as news organizations, we should be resisting that dynamic. We should be telling them, that's great, but we really wanted to talk to that newsmaker when we asked a couple of weeks ago, That person is less important to us this week than another topic that we're tackling. So we as a news organization are going to decide who we're gonna talk to and what topics we're going to tackle rather than having political figures and corporate interests dictate that to us. So on full measure, I think I can safely say it's never happened where somebody has called us and said, here's who we'll give you to interview for this Sunday unsolicited. Does it even make sense that the programs would all take the same person isn't the point of what they do as a news program is to try to bring information and differentiate themselves from the other stations. Why would you watch one over the other if all of them are going to have the same information? So I can tell you that some of the stories I've started researching over the summer are already going to just knock your socks off in terms of what we found out on some really important topics that has not been widely reported or reported at all in some cases. I thought for today's podcast, I would talk about something related to the Afghanistan crisis because I've been around long enough now to notice some similarities or some trends or patterns. And by that, I mean, it sounds like some of the things that are happening regarding the Afghanistan decision-making are similar in some respects to What happened during the Benghazi-Libya attacks and right before and right after those attacks some years ago? In defending the botched U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, Biden officials were saying that they got bad advice. They also claimed that the intelligence community's threat assessments as to how quick the Afghan government would collapse, well, they said that turned out to be wrong, the assessment. Furthermore, we now know that there were some advance warnings from diplomats on the ground in Kabul, Afghanistan, some U.S. diplomats who were warning that things could fall quickly, but apparently those warnings were brushed aside or largely disregarded. President Biden's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, is one of the key officials who is fending off all of this criticism. But, you know, he was doing much the same after the attacks in Libya nine years ago. On September 11th, 2012, Islamic extremist terrorists had attacked the U.S. compounds in Benghazi, Libya, murdering U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens and three other Americans. Numerous Obama administration insiders later disclosed that a decision had been made somewhere high up not to send the U.S. military to try to rescue those trapped Americans during the many hours of the attacks, despite the fact that troops said they were ready and poised to help. Well, back then, It was the Obama administration, including Sullivan, who was then deputy chief of staff to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who were heaping public blame for the attacks on what they called a spontaneous mob inspired by an anti-Muslim video. Do you remember that? So there was a terrorist attack underway, but when it was spun out to the public shortly before the 2012 election, when all this is happening... These Obama officials falsely claimed or told the public that they thought this was not a planned terrorist attack because they had said they had sent terrorists on the run. They said instead it was something they couldn't have predicted a spontaneous mob inspired by an anti-Muslim video online. How could they have known? Well, emails showed later that all the US officials knew from the earliest moments this was documented in the emergency dispatches while the attacks were underway that they were planned and executed by an Islamic terrorist group. But that information was kept hidden. Back then, many observers were aghast, really, that Obama officials had not heeded specific terrorist threats that we learned about later that had come nearing the anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And observers were surprised that Obama officials in the military didn't do the obvious put U.S. forces in place in these areas where there were threats in case there was an emergency. And that reminds me a bit of the lack of foresight shown by Biden officials in Afghanistan. And some of the explanations or excuses have a similar sound. With Libya as with Afghanistan, there's a little bit of wordplay, I think. Administration officials are arguing, as they had argued with Libya, that Their assessment that there was no immediate threat, remember they said this, that they weren't worried that the Afghan government would fall quickly. Well, they're saying, oh, well, that assessment was correct the moment it was uttered, but that the situation changed. I guess they're trying to avoid saying their judgment was wrong. So they're saying, well, at the moment we said there was no threat, there was no threat. But when it turned out to be that there was a threat, then there was a threat, but there wasn't at the time. We said there was no threat. While critics and observers are saying the unwillingness to acknowledge that they misjudged or were simply wrong, it impedes the opportunity to learn lessons and avoid a repeat of the same mistakes. Some could say this is a rerun in some instances of some of the misjudgments or similar types of misjudgments, as happened with Benghazi Libya, and maybe we didn't learn from that because the aftermath, the explanation after the Benghazi attacks was not really spent in figuring out what should have been done differently as much as it was spent spinning the whole thing to try to act like something hadn't been done wrong, or they couldn't have known, or it wasn't the type of attack that it actually was. Do you remember, and I broke some of these stories that regarding Libya, Obama administration insiders and emails revealed very extensive and well-documented specific advance warnings that there was going to be an attack over a period of months. There were even dates and times pinpointed of a series of attacks. All of the previous ones had come to pass, and the next one in line was going to be this one in Benghazi on this date. There were also pleas from Ambassador Stevens and other U.S. State Department and military personnel on the ground for added security. And these are not Obama administration enemies criticizing the Obama administration. These are Obama administration insiders making these claims were telling and revealing what had happened afterwards. Those requests for added security, you may recall, were denied in Washington, D.C., and security in Libya amid these threats was drastically drawn down instead of expanded. In the Afghan debacle, fault is being placed in part on what some say is flawed intelligence community assessments regarding how soon the country could fall, although some in the intelligence community are denying that. But I think it's being said that all the way around, nobody had predicted that the fall of the government, the Afghan government, could come in a matter of days. Again, the fact that nobody predicted it doesn't mean they were all correct. It means that everybody was wrong, and that should really not be an excuse for how it happened, but a reason to look at the people you're relying on and how they're getting their intelligence assessments if so many of them could be so wrong. The same was true with the Libyan tragedy. In a 2012 email that was kept secret for years, Jake Sullivan told Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, that the intelligence community was at fault for providing the incorrect information that blamed the video for inspiring the Benghazi attacks. And he says the intelligence community was unanimous about this incorrect information. Sounds familiar. Here's a quote from the email that Jake Sullivan wrote to Hillary Clinton and her confidant, Cheryl Mills, in September of 2012. Again, only revealed years later because these emails were covered up at the time. Jake Sullivan wrote, The real story may have been obvious to you from the start, and indeed I called it an assault by heavily armed militants in my first statement, but the IC, the intelligence community, gave us very different information. They were unanimous about it. So here... Jake Sullivan seems to be answering a question, although we don't have the other side of the email, but answering a question perhaps posed by Hillary Clinton and Cheryl Mills, asking, why did we blame the video when it turned out the video wasn't at fault for the attacks, that these were clearly Islamic extremist terrorists? And Jake Sullivan's reasoning is, the real story may have been obvious to you from the start, and indeed I called it an assault by heavily armed militants, but the intelligence community gave us very different information." If that's true, shouldn't that lead them to wonder why the intelligence community gave the different information and hold accountable the people who are so wrong or at least don't continue to rely on them for information? But we never heard anything like house cleaning after this bad intel or other bad intelligence calls. I'll say allegedly bad intelligence calls because who really knows, as all the blame is going around, who said what when? But anyway, Sullivan, Jake Sullivan, was a key participant in email chains involving controversial edits made to what we call the Benghazi talking points, the public information that was put out in the immediate aftermath of those terrorist attacks. Among the changes that were revealed in these email chains much later, the edits removed mention of the attackers' ties to al-Qaeda, and changed the word attacks to violent demonstrations. So this was part of the effort in the early hours and days after the attacks to steer public attention away from the fact that it was a terrorist attack and make it sound like it was some sort of demonstration gone amok or a spontaneous mob. They did not want it to be an Islamic extremist terrorist attack. Another familiar face from the Benghazi time who's involved today is Jen Saki, now White House spokesman. Saki was the State Department spokesman during the Benghazi attacks, and she was in the position of defending those controversial edits to the talking points when asked why a top State Department official told other officials to delete mention of terrorism in discussing the Benghazi attacks with Congress. Saki said at the time, quote, There was concern about preserving the integrity of the investigation, and she said they didn't want, quote, members of Congress to provide more guidance to the public than the administration. This explanation didn't really make sense. It was a little bit gibberish to me, but she's basically saying they didn't want to talk about the terrorist nature of the Benghazi attacks with Congress because they didn't want Congress to tell the public the facts when they hadn't told the public the facts. Well, when Hillary Clinton resigned as Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan went on to become Deputy Assistant and National Security Advisor to then Vice President Biden. And he is said in that position to have helped shape U.S. foreign policy toward Libya and Syria. Now, other familiar faces, the current Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, was serving as then Vice President Biden's National Security Advisor during the Benghazi attacks. After that, He was promoted to the spot as Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor and then to Deputy Secretary of State under John Kerry. All these people were around during the Benghazi time. The current CIA director, William Burns, he also had a presence and a role during the Benghazi attacks. As Deputy Secretary of State under Hillary Clinton, Burns had to testify to Congress after the Benghazi attacks, and one of the things he said was, quote, We've learned some very hard and painful lessons in Benghazi and are acting on them. But did they really? Last week, Jake Sullivan assured the public that the Taliban had committed to the safe exit of Americans in Afghanistan. And you kind of have to question how the U.S. is dealing with the Islamic extremist Taliban who's been our enemy for 20 years and how we're now having to cooperate and rely on them. Well, Sullivan has some experience in dealing with Islamic terrorists. Under the Obama administration, he was credited, or blamed, depending on one's view, with holding those numerous secret meetings with the Iranian regime. Those meetings that resulted in the controversial payment of $1.7 billion to Iran, the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism, to secure a promise that Iran would supposedly limit its development of nuclear weapons, and release four American prisoners. Who was joining Sullivan in negotiating the Iranian deal? It was Burns. What did we hear that Burns did in the past week? Burns was off meeting somewhere with Taliban leaders in negotiations. Were there promises of payments of U.S. tax dollars involved? We don't know. Today, many analysts blame U.S. missteps in Libya back then for allowing that country to disintegrate. It's still a mess today. It became a breeding ground and a pass-through for radical Muslims who ended up fighting in Syria and becoming part of the rise of the murderous ISIS movement. All of this is to say that when we look back at administrations and world events in history, I do wonder, are we really learning from past mistakes when we continue to rely on the same people who were there when mistakes were made? over and over again, and when the cleanup after the mistake seems to involve shifting blame and denying that anything went wrong, rather than really figuring out what should have been done and how to do things differently next time. Maybe that's part of why we find ourselves in the position that we're in today with Afghanistan. When we come back, a quick word and an update about natural immunity versus protection from vaccination when it comes to COVID-19. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. A quick update on a topic that is very high interest. In fact, when I write about this on my website, CherylAckeson.com, when I mention the phrase natural infection or natural immunity, it gets more hits than anything that I've posted on my website in all of these years. And that's because people know that they're not getting full information when it comes to how much natural immunity protects versus vaccination when it comes to COVID-19. And they've read the studies, I've compiled them, that are building a very strong basis for saying that, as expected, natural immunity is much stronger, longer-lasting, and works better than vaccination when it comes to preventing a new infection. We had looked in Israel that only 1% of the new cases in the recent wave were in people who'd been previously infected with COVID and survived and recovered, whereas a good percentage of them, something like 39% of the new cases, were in people who were fully vaccinated. So the protection of natural infection versus vaccination is much, much better. But for reasons you can speculate about yourself, our government and the media and others are really not even addressing that protection and just sort of shoving everybody in the direction of forced, mandatory, or pressured vaccinations. The military is about to go into forced vaccinations without even acknowledging the fact that, well, well over three months ago, more than 120 million people in the U.S. had already survived COVID, some of them asymptomatically, and presumably, therefore, enjoy better immunity than those who are vaccinated, and yet no mention of that in most of the guidance, or if it's mentioned It's to try to convince people that the natural immunity does not confer protection or that they should get vaccinated anyway, which is actually contrary to the bulk of the studies and the advice. It's very strange and people really want more information. That's why this topic is so popular. And that's why I thought I would update you on the largest study comparing natural immunity protection to full vaccination protection. This was done in Israel and it found a huge effect that natural immunity confers longer lasting and stronger protection against infection, against symptomatic disease, and against hospitalization for the Delta variant compared to the two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, which is either exclusively or almost exclusively being used in Israel. According to the study, after three months the risk of infection with COVID was 13 times higher among vaccinated patients, and they were 27 times more likely to experience symptoms than unvaccinated people who'd recovered from COVID. The study scientists crunched the numbers in several different ways and did several sub-analyses. In one instance, when they looked at nine cases of COVID-19 related hospitalizations, eight of them were in the vaccinated group, and one of them only, in the previously infected group. You can read this study for yourself, and I encourage you to do that, as well as consider the information that the government and others are putting out. Just get informed and make your own decisions. The title of the study is, Comparing SARS-CoV-2, that's COVID-19, Natural Immunity to Vaccine-Induced Immunity, Reinfections Versus Breakthrough Infections. I think you can also find this study if you just put in some keywords in your search, such as Israel, natural immunity, fully vaccinated. It should come up, but it's it's published right now at medrxiv.org. That's medrxiv.org. And to help you out at my homepage at com, I will leave my definitive article with all of the studies I could find on natural immunity. I'll leave that pasted to the homepage. This study is mentioned there too. So check it out and see what you think. The news as we once knew it no longer exists. It's become a product molded and shaped to suit the narrative. Facts that don't fit are omitted. Off-narrative people and views are controversialized, or neatly deposited down the memory hole. My new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, is filled with important context regarding the death of the news as we once knew it. Pick up your copy of Slanted today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast I hope you'll check out Full Measure every Sunday throughout the summer. We'll be back with a new and fresh season seven, our seventh year, beginning in September. I hope you'll check out my other podcast, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. Subscribe to both of them. Leave a good review. Share them with your friends. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself.